massive welcome to you, John. For those that haven't met John before, John is the senior pastor of Church of the City, New York, written multiple books. And there's an incredible favor on your voice right now, John, both in the States, but here in the UK. So we're absolutely chuffed that, that you're joining us. I'm going to start with some questions and then hopefully, you know, in a little while, we're going to open it up to others. But I want to ask you about spiritual awakening. Now, that's something close to your heart. Those that have tracked your journey, you know, will have tracked that you went on a revival tour around some of the sites of past moves of God. And there was a learning journey there. But some of us will have also heard you use this language. The clock dictates the play which I think is a basketball term we don't really use here in the UK because we've got some better sports. Um, but it's essentially this understanding that you've got to call the right play according to the time. And your sense was that the time is for the church to get on our knees and contend for a move of the spirit. So just talk us through that sense that you had and then what your learning was on this tour. Um, yeah, I, so part of my quest for revival and spiritual awakening really comes from my own story. I became a Christian um, in what I, I genuinely think was a Pentecostal revival at the time. It was a youth group. It was, it was small, um, but it was a youth group that, that encountered the touch and presence of God. The only way to describe it is that God was there, not the idea of God, not the desire for God, the reality of God. And it was a confrontation with the person of Jesus that, that ultimately changed me. And then I think the first or second book I read as a new believer, this is when I was 17, was Why Revival Tarries by Leonard Ravenhill. And my, the soil of my soul was so receptive for that message to make its way into my heart. So I then basically started reading the lives of the great saints, like it says in the book of Hebrews, um, you know, like basically making sure you have the right mentors. And so I wanted to be mentored by these revivalists through history. And then, yeah, it ultimately led to me doing a tour around the world of many of the, of the sites where a great outpourings of the Holy Spirit have happened. Um, I did have a growing sense, maybe the last three years, uh, a compounded urgency that there was just, there was just a moment coming. It was an invitation from God. It wasn't a judgment of God. It was an invitation. And it was basically to close the gap between what he's done in history and what we're seeing with our own eyes. We know, as we look around in our lives, this is not all God can do. All you have, I mean, you look on any page of the Bible and then you map that page of scripture with our current reality. And we say, he can do more than this. And so it was a desire to basically try and figure out the seasons of revival. What, what are the conditions that basically attracts the favor and presence of God? And so that was like a, um, that, that was sort of like the fuel behind it. And I had a deep desire in my heart before my son went off to college to do a family tour around the world, to embed revival history in our family's DNA. And uh, so someone graciously provided us the money. We had a patron who paid for our trip. And we, yeah, we went all over the place and it was deeply moving. Where um, did you go? The, oh, I mean, I mean, we, we went to so many places. We went and um, took communion with in the church uh, in Hernhut on the anniversary of the Moravian outpouring. We went, we went to the Hebrides. We saw a bunch of sites in England uh, where uh, Whitfield and Wesley did their stuff. We went to a, a, quite a few places um, in the US. We went to uh, down to Wales and prayed in the chapel where some of that stuff had happened. We went to, we went to 17 locations. Uh, wow. 
the place that moved me the most uh, was the Hebrides. And uh, anybody who knows me knows like what God did in the Hebrides is, is what I'm most interested in. But I, yeah, the clock determines the play. I think part of it was a sense we have never really in our life, we've experienced a renewal, the charismatic renewal and perhaps the Toronto blessing. They didn't call it the Toronto revival. They called it a blessing. It was a renewal. I know that deeply touched HTB uh, and Wimber and a lot of the UK church, but our generation hasn't really witnessed that. And we, we were just at a point of such utter decline. And a report came out called the great opportunity in the U S that basically talked about, um, we're going to lose 42 million young people from the church. Um, 50% of all churches in the U S are going to close. I remember having a conversation with you at a pub in London, where you said something like 40% or maybe 50% of Vickers in the church of England are going to retire in the next Mm -hmm. 10 years, some huge number. And I just got this sense, all the things we've been doing in our own power haven't worked. We've got the best media in history. We've got the best curriculum and software and the church conferences. We've got all of these things and they're failing at the moment of decline to stem the tide. And it was like, what is it that enables God to take the field, not just human effort? And uh, so that, that was like the sense of urgency that sort of came behind that. And, you know, what did I learn? Basically what we all know which is radical desperation for God um, and a, and a, a focus on humility and acknowledging our bankruptcy apart, apart from the power of the Holy spirit, uh, um, breaking up the unplowed ground, which means there's areas of spiritual neglect and invitation of God that we've been either distracted or weeds have gotten in like preparing an actual place for God to, to move in our lives, becoming the kind of people that God can move through it in power. And so there's the crucifixion of the flesh. There's the, the self-denial. There's a willingness to embrace being misunderstood and labeled as um, an unbalanced uh, extremist. There's all of those, all of those conditions. We forget that all of the revivals were heavily criticized. And um, so a, a lot of it was about preparation for being the kinds of people that God could use through humility, repentance, and desperation. Yeah. Amen. And so, I was going to say one thing what I, you know, I sort of had this manifesto talk. I was just like preaching to anybody who would listen. And one of the things I said was the church always does well in crisis. Yeah. We see that happening now. Why does it take a crisis? There was a crisis greater than the the COVID-19 virus happening before COVID-19 happened. And it was the radical decline in our generation. Um, of, of the presence and power of God. And uh, we were basically hemorrhaging a generation on our watch. And, um, and now COVID-19 has triggered something where once again, the church has responded beautifully. The question is, will this just be a panic response or will this be a sustained culture that is the starting point of a deeper work? Or will it just be a momentary patch to get us through the crisis? That's, that's the moment that we're in right now. So I don't know which way it's going to go. I'm encouraged by the signs, but we're in a moment of uh, destiny right now. It's an important moment. Yeah. And just listening to you speak, John, you can sense faith rising in this digital room, just this sense of expectation and hunger. This is what we've been praying for and believing for. Uh, just talk us through your passion then for intercessory prayer. So almost 
off the back of this revival tour, it feels like one of the messages you've gone after locally, but then your voice goes beyond that of like, we've got to pray. This isn't just a raw activism moment. This isn't like sharpen our programs. This is humble ourselves, get on our knees and pray. Talk us through your, your passion for incessory prayer. Yeah, man. I mean, I, it's, it's hard to articulate, but I, I just basically felt backed in a corner by God. Like what, you know, in, in, there was, um, there was this passage I'd been meditating on for years and it's in Mark's gospel where Jesus basically said, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. And I, I realized being involved in various prayer movements in New York city over the last 15 years, that those prayers weren't being, weren't being answered. And the implication mm. and expectation of the Bible is that God answers prayer. It's, it's not purely devotional. I love devotional prayer, intimacy with God. It is the, the root and joy. It is the well I drink from and tend to with a lot of diligence. But that's different than sort of like a contending warfare kind of prayer. And it seems that due to some abuses of basically weird Pentecostal ideology in maybe the, the, the 90s and early 2000s or whatever, our generation just lost an understanding of spiritual warfare and intercessory yeah. prayer. We did contemplative prayer. We, we did every other kind of prayer, but really fasting and praying for breakthrough. And, and as that verse says, I realized we were just up against a kind that our previous level of prayer and preparation was completely ineffective for. And so I, I, I certainly don't, I'm a, a practitioner of intercessory prayer. I'm not an expert at it. I just know what are the other options? Like what's going to turn the tide, mate? <laughs> Name something. It's like until God's people really take a hold of him and really, you know, Paul said, uh, you look at the fruit of Ephesus, the revival in Ephesus when Paul planted the church. I mean, it touched the economy. It spurred a riot. Uh, I mean, it was, it was a, the, the, people are burning witchcraft items in the street. I mean, it was like a, we would all fantasize about seeing that happen in our cities, but behind the scene in one passing comment, Paul says this, I wrestled with wild beasts at Ephesus, like the price he paid in spiritual prayer. And we forget that Ephesians yeah. chapter six was written at the end of the, uh, to the church at Ephesus, you know, and he's basically going to war with Artemis in the heavenlies. And, yeah. um, so I, it's, again, it even feels weird to talk about. I am like, I tend towards the academic and philosophical, not the pragmatic, but this is one of those areas we neglected and missed. So I just felt like if we don't get, if we don't press into this with prayer and fasting with more intensity, we're just not going to see breakthrough. And so that's yeah. sort of like what's pushed me into it. It's become one of the, the central disciplines and practices of my daily life. And uh, even, I mean, and, and, and it just seems that God hears those prayers in a different way when we meet the conditions. I mean, like two days ago, I had a leading of the spirit to pray differently around two specific areas. And I feel like someone just turned a tap on the last two days of my life. I've seen like genuine wow. breakthrough specifically in these two named areas that I brought for God. So, I mean, it's, it's tied up in people who will care and fight for the spiritual future of their city. Yeah. And I just, I just love New York so much. I want to shape it with the tools that God gives us. You know, another verse that I've been med meditating on, it says, 
the weapons of our warfare, warfare are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now just yeah. let that verse wash over your spirit. Mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And that's the kind of prayer our generation seems to have missed and yeah. that I'm basically trying to reclaim. So there's strongholds that are, that are wreaking havoc on people, systems of injustice and oppression, ideologies that are robbing people of intimacy, enslaving people. And we've got to have weapons to pull down those strongholds. Talk us through your own daily routine, because I, I know personally that you've chopped up the day into three sections for different forms of yeah. prayer. I'd just be helpful for people. How, how do you go about your prayer rhythms? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I have a three focus, three movements of prayer for my my day basically and this just like works for me in new york it's not for everybody i don't prescribe it i only describe what's worked um yeah in the mornings it's basically intimacy with god it's mueller's phrase the chief task of the christian is to make themselves happy in god mm -hmm. and so that is just intimacy it's, it's lectio divina it is meditating delighting in small passages of scripture and then just worshiping and enjoying god um yeah. So that is like basically a practice of intimacy and delight in God during the day, but particularly at lunchtime, I try and do incarnational prayer. And what I basically mean by that is where is the spirit working around me and how do I discern that? And then I normally try and go for a walk. It's definitely been harder um, with COVID, but walk around my neighborhood and just say, God, is there anybody you want me to minister to? Is there any like just being available on the street to be a, a prophetic voice or a word of knowledge or to pray for someone or to serve someone. And in the evening I do intercessory prayer. So I, I go for a walk every night and um, it's how I close out my day. And I have the, like the old school prayer list, praying yeah. for both of my children, praying for my family, praying for protection and praying for my church, praying for my friends and praying for the city, praying for breakthrough. And I, so I basically have things that I ask God to do. And then yeah. I try Wrestling and let wild this, beast in New York. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well i Come try on. and let the try and let the holy spirit shape those times and um and then yeah i'm trying to pray in the spirit i mean we have two intercessors arthur wallace says we have two intercessors jesus prays for us whether we pray or not but the spirit prays with us and we have to give him something to work with so we offer yeah. up our groanings and our voice and the spirit prays with us and through us so i'm trying to be particularly sensitive to what it is that God's trying to accomplish and then join him in prayer. I, I want to say this because it's important. The goal of intercessory prayer is hearing God's heart and his future and trying to speak it out. Yeah. Muslims pray five times a day. They're praying to a, to a different God and one that doesn't have power like the Christian God. The Pharisees prayed for, for hours and Jesus says they think they'll be heard because of their many words. So it's not the exercise of doing it on its own. It's praying in the spirit for the purposes of God and then sort of flowing and praying in the spirit. That's where the power is. Yeah. Amen. Let me ask you about spiritual formation because this is an incredible moment of spiritual formation. We're all being formed for good or for ill in this season. We're all sort of forming new work routines, exercise routines, limits around screen time, all of that stuff. So this is an incredible opportunity for the church to find its voice and invite people into spiritual practices that tied and tested over centuries that bring life. Um, you did a series a while back called This Must Be Stronger Than That, based off a Bonhoeffer quote. Just explain the quote and then just talk us through 
what you see God doing right now and, and how we need to be formed to, to offer something different to the culture that's crumbling around us. Yeah, that, that series is my next book that, and, and it got retitled because the publishers didn't like that. So it's called Beautiful Resistance. And um, but yeah, the, the quote is actually a scene from a life, uh, a, a scene from Bonhoeffer's life. And this is one of the places we went on the revival tour. We drove all night so we could pray it. Um, think involved, which is the place where his underground seminary was. Um, Bonhoeffer's friend comes to visit him. This is, this is a scene when they've asked him to basically shape a new generation of pastors, uh, ones that will resist the compromise of the German evangelical church. So uh, one of his friends hears about what he's doing. This is the early manuscript of life together in cost of discipleship, whose ideas were formed while he was running that seminary. And one of his friends is like, it's too spiritual. Like this is just too intense. So he comes and visits Bonhoeffer at the seminary and then they, they row in a boat across the Oder sound and they come uh, up onto a hill where Hitler is basically amassing and training troops. So you've got this image, you've got Bonhoeffer's tiny little pathetic underground seminary, which is soon going to be closed. And then you've got the might of the third Reich in disciplined formation and Bonhoeffer basically on a hill stands there and says, our discipline has to be stronger than the discipline of the German army. Our formation has to be stronger than theirs. They're basically building uh, an army for hardness and we have to have a superior discipline. And then they rode back. And it was this prophetic image of, of Bonhoeffer basically saying this, looking at his seminary, this has to be stronger than that. The way we form disciples has to be stronger than the way that Hitler is forming Germans in our cultural moment. Yeah. And so I, I basically wanted to help people see and understand there's no such. So we Christians talk about formation as if we're the only ones in the formation business. Mm. Formation is happening everywhere you go in every moment. And so I would argue that it's a moment of counter formation, not neutral formation. Yeah. And uh, we have a chance right now to evaluate the ways that our, our desires, our thoughts, our patterns and our habits have been shaped by our culture and the ways that Jesus wants us to, to shape those towards his kingdom purposes. And, and they're not, um, they're not super dramatic. They're just neglected. It's like literally time meditating and praying through God's word. Um, it is a, it is a, an orientation towards others rather than just self care and concern. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's basically reclaiming our attention. I mean, like one of the great things we've got to get right right now is basically not being a slave to the screen, you yeah. know? And so you've got to be, you've got to be very, very um, diligent that we don't waste the pandemic. And I, I said to our church, you know, what's going to be a tragedy if at 30 years from now we say, tell me about COVID-19 and all we can do is list out the series of TV shows we watched on Netflix. <laughs> like if our, if our media consumption is the definitive yeah. reality of COVID-19, we're not going to be the people that Jesus wants. So it's basically returning to those principles of first things. And it is, it's the word, it's the prayer, it's love of neighbor, yeah. it's silence, solitude, those sorts of things. And I know they sound so simple. However, Look at our lives before this and they were cluttered. So many yeah. people were, were neglecting their first love. Our schedules were out of control. The question is like, how, how are we so deeply formed and how do we ingrain 
what we're experiencing now so that it has the power to resist when we eventually lift the quarantine and work sorts itself out. Now I'm not talking about the short term, like the next 18 months, I'm talking about a long-term change of lifestyle. So the deeper we go into these practices now, the more yeah. resistance they'll have when the quarantine lifts. Yeah. John, I also want to ask you about just culture and the renewal of culture. You've done a lot of thinking and writing historically on cultural renewal. And we know that the culture is going through an incredible shift right now. Culture is crumbling. It's, it's in chaos and through this crisis, there's going to be a rebuilding. I heard one sociologist talk about the kind of three phases that follow a global trauma. The first phase is the heroic, everyone desperately trying to rescue themselves and their organizations. And we've done that in the church. Let's take everything online in this kind of panic. And there's some beautiful things that emerge in the heroic phase, but there's a lot of ego and denial of the trauma. Second phase is the disillusionment, grief kicks in, deep sense of loss and we begin to process some deep emotion. And the third phase is the hopeful rebuilding. And I think what you're saying is actually there's a spiritual formation task in this moment of disillusionment for us to go deep um, and to, to grow strong. But I want to ask you about the hopeful rebuilding that, that's going to be in the well, months. Can I just interrupt? Yeah, one, yeah, sorry, one thing. You've forgotten that in America, there's a, fourth, a third phase between that, which is defiance of government and pressing for rights. This is people with guns at state capital saying that it's out. So you may not have that in the UK. You may be a little more compliant, but that American independent spirit's in fine form. That's the phase we're in right now. Okay, well, we're in <laughs> disillusionment. So who, who knows what comes? Who knows what comes next? But in terms of the hopeful rebuilding, yes. like how does the church ready itself, not just for the next few months, but this is going to be, you know, years, if there's a recession and other things, the aftermath of this is going to be, we need a long-term vision. How do we ready ourselves to play our part in the hopeful rebuilding and reimagining of culture? Well, I, the, the first place I would say is the church has an opportunity to change the cultural narrative. And, uh, you know, so the bet buster said narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins. Um, one of the things I read in uh, this pandemic that's really intrigued me is there's a difference between story and narrative. The church talks about story, 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 but narrative is what we mean. And narrative is an overarching theme. And the story are just like little data points that reinforce the change in narrative. And so, you know, this is probably clearest, uh, most clear uh, in, in how well the LGBTQ community, they didn't change the story because an individual story about a gay couple or a, a, a transgender person is not that compelling on its own. They changed the narrative and the narrative changed from um, in the church, this was sinful in the culture. This was classified um, as a disorder and legally it was illegal. They, they changed the narrative to love is love. And then they used individual stories to reinforce the narrative. And so my, one of the things the church talks about right now all the time is like, we've got to tell stories, stories of what's happening here. No, this is an opportunity to legitimately shift the narrative of our culture. Yeah. And we've had a secular narrative in many ways that has said, um, do whatever you want. Culture exists as a blank canvas to maximize self-expression. Um, God is irrelevant. Spirituality is only used as a coping mechanism to free you from dependence on God. And now that, that illusion has been shattered. And it's like, oh my gosh, people in their 20s are dying. Oh my gosh, all the things that I'd relied on aren't working. Um, 
we're in a little bit of that moment in the wizard of Oz where they pull the curtain back and it's like a scared, frightened person who can't figure out how to get home either. And so we have an opportunity to basically bring in a, in a dominant secular narrative, a story of spirituality and a, a story of the gospel. Turns out we do need faith, hope, and love. This shouldn't be on the fringe of the public uh, consciousness. It should be at the center of it. So the first part is, um, you know, ch in, in changing cultures, changing the narrative of a culture. Yeah. So the church has an opportunity to talk about why contemplating our mortality, the role of prayer and finding support in crisis should be a regular part of our lives again. So the first part is, is narrative work and then smaller stories that reinforce that. And the church right now has more of those than ever. Um, the Blessing UK, 2 million people, maybe 3 million at this point. Watch that. What was that? That was a shattering of a secular narrative that says you don't need the blessing of God. You can define it yourself. It resonated at a primal level. So the church now throwing smaller stories that reinforce that narrative um, is an important opportunity. And um, the other thing I think we would need on a more practical level is churches to basically be present for the long haul. And yeah. I think one of the big things is, is through commitment. So people say to me, what's the future of New York going to look like? I'm like, I have no idea. I just know I will be in the middle of it, praying, loving, serving, pastoring, pouring myself out. And so the way we rebuild is by being in the rubble and picking up what's yeah. around us and putting it towards a purpose. And so I, I think that's where we have to start. Um, I, Neil, Neil Postman, um, has something which I think is very, very important. He calls our culture has made us liars, which he says is low information to action ratio, which means we know everything about that, which we can do nothing about. And we know nothing about that, which we can do everything about. So yeah. for example, you know about Wuhan, China, which many people never heard of before. Um, you know everything about the statistics and rates of infection in Italy and the United States, but you personally cannot do anything about that. Now, in your neighborhood, you can know your actual neighbor's name. You can understand the owners of local businesses. Your level of agency on a local level is 100%. Yeah. On a global level, it's very low. So the church is going to need to shift its focus onto rebuilding actual streets, neighborhoods, communities, mm -hmm by being a fruitful presence in the midst of it. So Christians need to get to the center. They need to, they need to sacrifice. They need to have an other orientation and they need to do everything they can with what in the area of their agency. And um, yeah. so it's not wrong to have an awareness of what's happening in the globe, but your agency exists to build in the rubble of your actual community. And I'll say this, people always remember how you treat them in a crisis. They will always yeah. remember. And if the church shows up in the rebuilding phase, we will have earned a seat at the table in larger cultural conversations because even our harshest opponents will acknowledge that we were a source of good and restoration. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Final question for me. What, what kind of leadership does this moment require? So for you as a church pastor in New York, and we know New York's been through just a huge amount. Um, yeah, what leadership is needed in this moment? Uh, it's, um, it's basically a dual, 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 uh, lens, D U A L <laughs> dual, dual level leadership. 
um, which so it's basically both levels. It's pastoral care. It's deep, deep empathy uh, for a lot of the trouble people people have been through. But at the exact same time, confident leadership that we're going to yeah. get through it through shared commitment. Um, it is caring about the city as a whole and the narrative of, of the region while at the same time caring about the building in the street where you live. Um, yeah. It's got to be confident, but not arrogant. It's got to be collaborative, not divisive. Um, it's got to be informed by the wisdom of the spirit and not just uh, political fighting. Like what is it that God wants to see built? Um, and, and I think, I think one thing um, I heard Tim Keller say that I, I thought a lot about this. Um, he said that after 9-11, almost everybody on his team made it through, like most of his staff stayed through. But about two years later, a ton of people just rolled out because they basically had that heroic yeah. um, adrenal level leadership where they just burned themselves out to get through the moment. So I, I think we need to live at, you know, what we talk about um, at a sacred pace, you know, which is that it's full engagement, but the replenishment cycle is right. So leaders have to basically build rhythms of engagement and restoration so that people yeah. can get through this in the next five years, because we are going to have a crisis 18 months from now. If all the people who got us through it burn out and there's nobody there to actually take us to the next level. So there's got to be a yeah. lot of sort of like thoughtful reflection in that. Yeah. Let me ask you just personally then, yeah. because your whole family's been hit by this. This isn't just something you're trying to lead a church through. This is like family <laughs> level. Just <laughs> talk whole us family through got that. COVID. Yes. And it your wife so got particularly hit. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was really, it. I mean, it was just disorienting. I got it first. I thought I was dying for 48 hours. I and mean, I literally was like, Oh my gosh, this is how I'm going out. God, my time's in your hands, but please, what, what do I need to strike to give me 15 more years, Lord, you know? And then it just lifted. I woke up like I basically slept all day and all night and I woke up and I was like, I'm not going to die. I think I'm going to make this through, but it took 14 weeks, sorry, 14 days before I was like functional again. And two months, I did a, I did a five mile walk this morning and I thought I'm a hundred percent back. I feel great. Yeah. That was over two months. My wife was in bed for a month, chronically sick, should have been hospitalized multiple times. Didn't go in because she thought she'd get more sick because of the crowding in the hospitals. And then my kids basically slept in for a couple of days and were fine. Like <laughs> it's just amazing how differently we processed it, but it was very challenging to try and preach while sick. Yeah. You know, and it was very challenging to try and care for my wife and um, try and lead the church and care for our staff team. So, you know, for, for people who are sort of like making light of it, I can tell you personally, it's getting COVID is nasty and it really rocked me. And um, it's something, you know, like, so wear the mask, do what they say, because I'm like a reasonably, healthy, you know, middle-aged guy. And it just smashed me. And I can't imagine someone 70 or 80, this, I can see why it has a disproportionate impact on the elderly. So it's an act of love to be thoughtful and careful of others. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. John, I think we probably need to wrap up there, but I just want yeah. to say on behalf of everyone, what an incredible gift, just learning from you, the way you just 
provide language to help us understand the moment and express what we're feeling and, and what we're sensing. You have and continue to be such a gift. And we were hoping to be with you in person or, or you'd be with us, yeah. you know, on a field somewhere in, in the UK. Oh. And instead we're, we're gathered here digitally. Um, but we want to say we love you and we're so grateful for your voice. And God bless you and all that you're doing in New York and beyond. Well, thanks so much, mate. And hopefully hopefully I can come and be in the middle of the field one of these days with you guys. Love oh, you yeah. guys so much. Thank you, you very much. We'll, we'll make it happen. In the fever, you are with me Like a child in their father's arms And to the griever, you are the Take our death into your own on the cross. Arise, righteous Son, with healing in your wings. So